I just think every leader needs to deeply understand how to implement ChatGPT either as a differentiator in their business or as an offering that they're offering to their customers. Because if, if they're not doing it, maybe sure that the competition is doing it again, either internally as an organization or externally as an offering. And if you're not thinking about it, then you're already behind. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. Hey, leaders. Welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, I am excited to welcome Leon Lerman to the show. Leon covers some topics that I don't think get mixed together all the time, and I'm interested to dive in because I'm a little bit of a cyber nerd and a lot of a business nerd. So, Leon, welcome to the show. I'd love if you give an introduction of yourself and your company so that we can dive in. Sounds good. Thank you very much for having me, David. A pleasure to be here. So my name is Leon Lerman. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Scenario. Uh, we're a cybersecurity company that is specifically focused on healthcare, protecting hospitals and healthcare providers from cyber attacks based in New York City. Yeah, I'm one of those guys that reads all the horror stories of cyber and likes to dig into them. And obviously there's probably super interesting parts of the work where you get to mitigate, you know, a huge attack or, or something cool like that. And then there's probably also 90% of the work, which is like an outrageous amount of data and endpoints and all kinds of stuff that you need to process and an incredible flow of information that comes in really at an exponential rate when you're dealing with managed attack resolutions and things like that. The threat vectors in healthcare must be absolutely amazing and enormous. I've read the stories of hospitals get locked out all their records from a phishing attack and they got to pay Bitcoin and all kinds of stuff. Man, just tell the story of what you'd see and do out there without terrifying everybody. Because I've also read the novels where everybody's pacemaker gets hacked. And I don't know if that's a real thing, but <laughs> it, it is. Unfortunately, it is. Again, not. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not to terrify everyone. But yeah, so we, we decided to go into healthcare. Uh, I think in general, we see a trend where cyber becomes more specific. Up until recently, it was like cyber was the this company or person who tells everybody that they cannot do things and you can't really go to the internet, you can't really go into those apps. And it's changed, right? Everything is becoming connected. And now cyber needs to be a business enabler versus the, just the, the bad guy. So that's why you're starting to see more cybersecurity companies becoming industry focused, because to be a business enabler, you need to understand the business. And we decided to go into healthcare because on the one hand, it's a very underserved industry, right? That there's, it's the number one under attack industry by cyber criminals. And also it has a little bit more meaning to it, to be honest, right? I've been in cyber for over 25 years and done banking and insurance and credit cards. And it's all important, of course, but in healthcare, it's about lives. You know, somebody could hack into a medical device change the dose of the dispensed medication and potentially kill a person, we make sure it doesn't happen. So that when you go to sleep at night, gives you a little bit of the extra motivation that you actually did something that matters. It's interesting because having worked in insurance the day where they talk about like how many lives they manage. And that's not the same thing as, no, seriously, like people might die if we don't properly deal with this. 
What do you see out in the field that's changed? I mean, gosh, 25 years of cyber. I mean, everything has changed. But just now, I know there's futurist or near future conversations, quantum, AI, you know, I mean, all these things like none of our passwords are safe, all this stuff. And I don't want to do just the pop cybersecurity thing because I don't read it on the depth probably that you do there. But yeah, talk around that space because starting and running a company in that is I know there's, it's kind of like sales companies, right? There's a million cyber companies now, every professional services firm and like that, that focus on the, the niche of healthcare, I think it's probably an important part of your story. It is, it is. I think what's unique in healthcare is that, again, it has a large variety of unique devices, right? For uh, We started a company focusing on medical devices. We have all those IV pumps, MRI machines, patient monitors that, you know, on the one hand became a lot more connected. So now everything is in the cloud. Everything needs to be reached out remotely. Doctors want to be able to connect with their laptops from home and read a diagnosis or write a diagnosis or look at at an image. So things are very connected. But on the other hand, those devices are still not built with security in mind, right? So running Windows XP's, Windows 95, a lot of legacy devices that stay for a long time in a hospital and it's lot more difficult to update and patch them. So to your point, David, what's different is that the devices are different. And also you cannot protect them using the more traditional cybersecurity solution. If you want to install, let's say, an antivirus, even something basic like that, on an MRI machine, it's very common for the manufacturer to come back to you and just say, hey, we're going to avoid the warranty if you do, because you could potentially interfere with the clinical function of the device. This ecosystem is very different. And you need to be able to discover the devices, understand them, understand the medical workflow. And on the remediation side, if you want to take action, you also need to be very careful because think you have a vulnerability on a ventilator and you want to do something to address it. You, you better understand the medical workflow to be able to do it safely. Wow. So there are people that hack ventilators? Terrifying to me. Yes. You know, like people will, bad guys do bad things and will keep doing that. A lot of the attacks are also like drive by, right? Uh, If you may have a ransomware attack that just goes after older operating systems, they don't even know if it's a ventilator or an MRI machine, but those devices, because of what I mentioned, happen to run very obsolete systems. So they're an easy target. Right. It's like we have entered this like fully connected universe, which lends itself to all kinds of amazing positive benefits. But nobody stopped to think at that time, wait a second, like what even runs this thing that I now gave access to the entire world and all the ports are open and it uses a default password. And people did this with their home routers years ago. And and finally that got better, maybe at least they weren't shipping with everything wide open. But this idea of connected devices in the realm of a critical life-saving infrastructure that sounds like, I guess it sounds like the perfect storm for like somebody needs to fix it. How did you even evolve to this space from cyber in general? Yeah. Yeah. And I think in general, David, it's uh, usability comes before security, right? So we cannot stop the advancement of technology and things getting more connected. We just need to make sure that we also think about security. So 
From our perspective, uh, again, I've been doing cyber for, for, again, over 25 years and always trying to look for specific areas where that are underserved and there's a specific expertise that is required. I think that's what you need as a startup, right? Otherwise, big companies would do it. You find a niche where deep technology and expertise are required, and that gives you the ability to kind of like run fast and have a unique value proposition. So my co-founder, Daniel, and I, we had a couple of conversations with hospital CISOs who told us about those challenges that they have, that all of those traditional security solutions just don't have the right context, right? Don't really understand those devices, don't really understand healthcare. And we saw that as an opportunity, started investigating the space, found that there's a lot of noise, and we thought it's a good opportunity to start a company in the space. So the way I understand a lot of the, the companies in the space, you have a natural mix of proprietary or all kinds of technology that you need to develop. We also have a service layer. It's really built into it. Like we want to super enable human analysts to do important things and cut through the noise and all that. But like more than most spaces, it's, it's like a union of, yeah, you're like a SaaS company and a software company, but you're really also a high-end service provider, which makes, it's a different proposition for a business. And then ultimately when you get into the fundraising and stuff, like you want to lean into like, well, we make SaaS margins, but we also have to have humans. And I've seen companies deal with that in different ways. So I'm just curious how that works, because I think that's, that story goes up and down to any sort of industry that thinks about productizing a service or adding a service layer on top of a technology product. And it's a hard thing to do. It is. So I think this is where generative AI and all the revolution with AI kind of comes into play. And I'll share how we were looking at this. So we, we have a team called Scenario Live. Was basically, it's a team of analysts. And they are adding the human element to a lot of the vulnerability research and threat intelligence and looking at different anomalies and alerts and like making sure that they are spot on and not a false positive. And what we're basically been doing is that when we just started the company, so obviously we wanted to make sure we're accurate because the last thing you want to do is flood the customer with false positives because then it's the worst thing that can happen with cybersecurity product. Isn't a false negative worse? Um, false positive? It depends. A, f- a false negative yeah. depends. <laughs> if, if you have too many false positives and it's not reliable, then... But you want to balance that noise to accuracy ratio. And, and you have this tiny area of being right, which I guess as a problem solver is exciting. And also as a business, you're just like, like the margin of error is not strong there. <laughs> exactly. And, and this is like what we also bring to the table because... We're coming to a hospital and saying, hey, look, we only do high hospital cybersecurity. And in this space, we will be very good. We will have not a lot of false positive, right? So initially, we had obviously stuff that are done automatically by the system and then some validation that is done by the human element or the service, if, if you will. And now as, as the time goes by and we're, getting, we're sitting on more data, the algorithms are starting to learn more and, and becoming more accurate. And then you start using the analyst and the human element for more specific tasks, less the day-to-day things. And now with generative AI, we're actually taking it what's one step further. And a lot of the analysis are done by our healthcare-specific generative AI. 
where the analysts are now being freed up to do very, uh, I would say, different tasks, like investigating an attack. So the attack is confirmed by the system, but then the investigation is done by the analysts. Or vulnerability research in the wild, looking what attackers are doing, learning their moves, and then developing countermeasures. I, I think this is also a good balance. You know, people are concerned about narrative AI will kill our jobs and will change the world. I think, no, it will just shift the focus of a lot of manual work works to, to do something else. Ask any security analyst, are they really excited about waiting manually through 100,000 entries in a log? No, they're not. And, and a machine can do that in a meaningful fashion. And then you could have inferences drawn on, hey, we've seen a thing like this already. One time an analyst marked that safe, we feel pretty good about it, you know, and that you start to get a smarter and smarter thing there. But then you can have your really smart humans go out there and investigate the zero day vulnerability on some obscure medical device that is gathering dust, but happens to be producing really valuable insights for patient care. So I, I would imagine that's a great use case for, hey, we just freed you from having to do things that machines are uniquely capable of doing, which is that can be the integration of tons and tons of qualitative unformatted data. And it will keep moving forward. And once the machine becomes smarter, uh, you know, you teach the machine to do that, and then you free your time to do even more cool stuff. As you've seen that develop, that I mean, not that like AI is new, like people paying attention to AI is new. Companies like yours have been ahead of that, I'm sure. As you've seen that develop, what has been the change over that 20 years of cyber? Because I think you have this unique sort of stepwise where it's like, hey, we get better at things, but also the bad actors get better at things. And they also have generative AI and they also have the ability to exploit at much greater efficiency. So it's that cat and mouse thing that like this strange world of hacking. It is. And it's the, the equation is not balanced, right? Because the attacker, they only need to be right once. And they created a devastated attack. As a defender, you need to be, it's like in soccer, right? You, as a defender, you need to stop not all, 100 attacks. To do a good job. The attacker only needs to score once. That's the, the difficulty of it. I think from a generative AI perspective, we're starting to see attacks getting more sophisticated. I think the advantage that we specifically have is the, the data, right? We're sitting on a lot of healthcare-specific data. And the Gen AI is as good as the data you train it on. I don't think a lot of the attackers, they have access to a lot of the healthcare and medical device data because it's expensive and it's not very easy to get to. So we are seeing that the defenders doing a little bit better there, but I'm sure it will continue advancing. And our approach is just, we need to keep innovating, right? That's why you keep seeing startups. You keep seeing more new companies in that space that think about unique ways and new ways of addressing attacks. I think that what's interesting about the generative AI is that it also makes it easier for the customers to use the products. Because there's been a big challenge when they, you know, customers buy multiple vendors, but then it's shelfware, right? They can't really use it. They don't have the skills. They don't have the people to use it. And Gen AI makes it a little bit more accessible and automated for easier for customers to use the products, integrate them, make sense of the data, and I think that also is a step forward in terms of making the organizations more secure. Right. Yeah. Businesses typically don't, they have 
understaffed significantly this function. And it's wildly expensive to imagine developing your own, what do they call it? The SOC, right? Security Operations Center. You can't do that. I mean, so it lends itself pretty well to a professional service industry where you can say we have technology enabled humans that can do all this for you. How do you, I guess people just maybe CISOs just know this is the the case now, but it makes me think that's the kind of trust-based service that is really hard to get momentum on in, in the beginning, right? Like the initial sales of a thing like this, why should I buy yours when there's other people that do it? Now you seem to have, you know, meaningfully built a moat, right? For we have all, we have the best healthcare related data. I imagine that was part of your analysis of the market. You would say, okay, what are the best underserved areas where we can collect, essentially collect the data moat and build a technological moat around it? That's good business. Was that analysis really part of the beginning there? Because that, that seems like what we might derive as a lesson for the other founders is like, it's not just the niche, but it's like, how can you address the niche? Definitely. Obviously, you have to make sure you have a market that you can go after before you start a company. And what we saw is, yeah, the technological moat was a big advantage. So we looked for a space that like the big companies would not be able to develop a solution. The more deep technology it is, the better it is, I mean, the better it was for us. We specifically selected that space because of that. And we also were looking at a deployment where, as you said, the data will be unique. So we are cloud-based. So the more customers we have, the more data we have. And then the machine learning runs on the data of all of the customers and becomes better and more accurate over time. It scales, right? That on the 100th hospital you can just detect things out of the box. And, and from a credibility perspective, you're absolutely right. The one thing you don't have as a company when you start, especially as a startup, you don't have credibility. So the route to market becomes very important. I know you mentioned managed services. We partner with various MSSP providers that already have customers and they added us as an additional service for the medical and IoT devices. We work with channel partners who sold to, to, customer, to, to hospitals for many years and we are always looking for innovative technologies that they can take to those hospitals to address needs. Yeah, it's not a battle you can win alone. You have to create an ecosystem. You have to know what's the unique thing that you're bringing that nobody else can solve. Right. In our piece. Because at the same time, you're not the only person who has a new innovative thing that's knocking on the door of the MSPs, right? Like the very fact that those partner channels and MSPs, like they... It's super cool that they already have all your clients and also everybody else knows that. So they're going to try to get the business from there and like, hey, you should sell our thing and you should, you know, what about this? What about that? So they're bombarded with stuff they could also sell. So it's, it reminds me of, it's the same type of problem where everybody who starts a service firm generally think, oh, you know, I'll talk to VCs because they'll sell me to their whole portfolio. It doesn't work that way, right? Like everybody else had that idea too. <laughs> you know? So you have to be unique in some compelling way. And in some senses, it's harder to get through the noise and break into the attention of the providers like that, the MSPs, the partners, because they have access to everything already. And that's what I'm saying. Don't, and maybe again to the audience, don't be tempted to solve like an easy problem. Right. Sometimes it makes sense to focus on something that is more difficult to do. And it took us a few years to build the product and make sure we can identify all of those devices. 
There's over 200 unique communication protocols and you need to parse them and proprietary and non-proprietary. But the prize, if, if you're able to do that, to your point, David, there's fewer players that are have the expertise to go through the hurdles of developing that. And then you're really in a position to be a market leader. So you, you talked about some of your past experience rising up to this point as a founder and also the international travel and experience and being in different countries. I, I don't know, weave that together. Tell the story of, hey, how'd you get here? This is a successful thing. You made it. Woo! But what was before that? Because I always, I always like to know lessons learned and brick walls I hit too fast and all kinds of stuff. There's The good stuff is before you look at it and be like, yeah, we did a good job. I grew up in Israel and there's this thing in Israel where there's a mandatory military service. So you have to you have to go <laughs> to the military. And I think that's a great thing. I think that's why you see a lot of a lot of successful cybersecurity companies in Israel, out of Israel because there's a great school in, in the military, right? You're 18 when you have to go and recruit. And that it's just a great organization to, especially the Israeli intelligence, to teach you cybersecurity. This is like where you know I started and I, and I had this both in terms of the knowledge, but also in terms of the ecosystem and the friends, the, the people that, that you spend 24 hours a day with, who eventually become your employees and co-founders and partners and investors. I think that's a great advantage, right? We talked a little bit about what's the unfair advantage or what, what you know, and that's one, like you get a network of people and knowledge that is unique. And once I finished my military service, I immediately went into tech. So I know there's the more traditional way of you go to school, you go to college, you get a degree, then you get a job. In cyber, in Israel, it works a little bit differently because if you've been in the military and you already got hands-on experience, then you are much more valuable to an employer than somebody who finished a bachelor degree in a university because you have practical hands-on experience. And then you can do the degree later, but you just do it for fun or to meet more people and get more broader perspective about things. So that was my journey. I, I went into tech. I started in technology. I've learned over time that I'm more interested in talking to people and customers and more interested in the business side. And it was very difficult to make the move because if you're a technologist, you're kind of like being put in this bucket. And then I found a way to, to get a position as a pre-sales engineer, which is still the technologist, but in the sales cycle, the person that gets the technical win runs the POCs, et cetera. And there from there, I just little by little, I started progressing on the on this business ladder uh, up into becoming a sales leader in a large company in RSA security. And then I said, okay, this is the time to, I, I have now, I, I've learned enough from a large company that I think I can go into a startup and kind of like start from scratch. I went into a startup, I was employee number one, so still not the founder. And wanted to get the experience of what how things are done, but be very close to the decision-making process, be part of the management team. And then when I was ready, then I just said, okay, now it's the time to start Scenario and like found my own company once I have all those lessons learned. So I guess one thing I'll just say, try and listen to your like people, you know, they just take a job and they just work it and it pays well. But always listen to your inner self in terms of what's your real passion. What do you really want to do? What do you really enjoy? And you, you may change your mind or it can be iterative, right? You may think that you'd like this and then you try and do this. And then 
you realize that you like something else more, but be very attentive to it and find ways to put yourself in positions where you will have this, you'll be able to try multiple things. It could be a startup. It could be a boss that is a little bit more like flexible and giving you responsibilities in different roles, because this way, once you find this spot where you have the product market fit, if you will, for yourself, then you'll just be very successful because it'll be a combination of something you like doing, you're passionate about, something you're probably good at doing, and it will just, life will be good. And you have that intentional path then from all the way back when you're like, hey, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to run a company. I want to start a company and I'm going to build all the pieces of that to be ready. Is that how it was in your head? Like that object, like or goal setting? You grow up. And again, if you're part of this ecosystem and I think, again, this is a very important thing, right? Put yourself in an ecosystem of people that you can be successful with. And then you, you see a friend that founded a company, sold it for a billion dollars. And you're saying that and you're saying, well, I've been in his class. We have pretty much, I guess a billion dollars is motivating. You know? Yeah. Like why, if he can do it, maybe I, I should do it too. So you, again, you're being exposed to some of those stories and then you're like, Hey, well, why can't I do it? And then, okay, so what do I need to do it? What, what do I need to, to be able to do it successfully? And then, yes, I created this path and had some flexibility of obviously you learn things about yourself and what is the right timing and some people they have kids and family commitments and all that but just stay on the path and keep moving forward and it will happen right and i think that's a good point too is that you can see and be inspired by somebody who has what you maybe want someday or at least you want to try it out and i remember in early in my career like thinking i wanted certain positions or things. And then I went and took the job under that and looked at the guys that had the job that I wanted to do or end up with. And it was awful. And I was like, never mind, I don't want to do that. So that, I was the guy that ping-ponged around before I said, hey, there's this entrepreneurship thing and I want to start doing companies. And it was more like, I think I just want to be the boss and run my own thing because I don't I don't play well with others. I fixed that since then. I'm a happy guy now. But there's so many paths and some are harder or easier, but they're all complicated. And and at least you can try. I completely agree with you, David. Like you you may have this dream for any reason because your friend did it, because you read on the newspaper that somebody did it, and you say, I want to try it. And you may try it and you may hate it. But at least you tried it, what it takes, it's not for you. And it just it's much better than the what about or what if situations that are typically make people miserable. Did you start early with a funding plan? When you're starting a firm like this, you got to build a lot of software. You got to have a team. And clearly, if you have established track record, you can go then raise a bigger round and get the funding you need. But at the beginning, I think a lot of people are worried about, Gee, how do I even start this? It was like, I need some basic momentum. I need to study the market. I need to spend, and you should spend some years figuring things out. Any tips there for how do you go from, okay, I'm going to do this to three years later, fine, we proved our concept. And, and I know that there's that period, there's a reason they call it like rum and profitable. Like you're cramming together as many clients as you can barely just keep the doors open and the lights on. I love those stories because I've done that and I know <laughs> that that's, it's not an overnight success. That's why I have no hair. So I'll, 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 I can share what was our story. So I think the most important thing is find a partner first. Like I, 
I'm strongly against just doing it yourself. I think you need a partner and this partner, it's really important. It needs to be a person that complements you from a skill perspective. So if you're a very business oriented person and you want to do like a deep tech startup, you, you need somebody that can understand deep tech, right? So the who I think is more important than the what. For me, it was more like, I want to do a startup. I want to do it with Daniel was the most important thing. And then the secondary was, okay, what do we do? Don't fall in love with the idea or the, the concept because that may change. So Jim Collins thing too, who first, then what? I think it's a good to grade or something. There's one book that has a bunch of that stuff. So yeah, it's a good point. Because it changes, right? Like you, you may pivot like every, on average, like a startup pivots like twice. So the initial idea is not that important. But then to your point, once you have the who and, and the partner and the team and you decide that you do something, you know, we started with a validation, right? So we, we didn't even, before we wrote a single uh, line of code, we just wanted to make sure there's a problem. So our kind of like understanding was there's a lot of devices. They are getting more connected. That increases the attack surface and looks like the existing solutions are not applicable. Do people care? So I just went on LinkedIn I was sending messages to hospital CISO, chief information security officers. I think I've sent to over a hundred and just said, hey, my name is Leon. I have this idea. We're starting a company in this space. I'm not looking to sell you anything, right? I just want to run something by you and get your feedback. And once you do this, like they're a lot more open to have a conversation because you're not a vendor that's trying to sell them stuff. You're more an entrepreneur that gets their feedback and people are a lot more open to that. So we had quite a bit of conversations. We showed them a couple of slides. We got valuable feedback. And basically what you're trying to understand is, number one, is it a big problem for them? You know, number two, how big of it is a problem and how much are they willing to spend on it, right? And the third thing is kind of like the ecosystem and, you know, competing solutions and, you know, what's, what are they doing today to try and solve the problem? So once you get enough of this feedback, then, you know, you start building a pretty compelling story. And once we had that, then we said, okay, let's try and go fundraise. It's the first time we're doing it. Our approach was to try and fundraise before you get traction. Because in my opinion, and I know this is sometimes a little bit not conservative, but I, I think it's better to raise money with nothing than with something. Because if you have something, there's a lot more questions that can be asked. Let's say you bring a one customer in and the customer pays you $25,000 a year. So the investor will say, oh, really? That's all it's worth? And then you start, no, it's just the first version. We need the money to build a much more sophisticated one. So it's easier in a way, early stage, to just sell a dream in a PowerPoint and say, we're going to grow this to be a multi-million, almost billion dollar business and all. And then having some proof points that are not very attractive. And at first, most of them are not very attractive. So. You got to be pretty confident to pull that off. Well done. I mean, you have to really believe in what you're doing. And I think the undercurrent of that is that customer discovery work that you did. You proved there was a real thing first. I have seen a lot of people go out with slideware that have done no evaluation and they just have an idea. You know, that's not the same thing. So you proved that there was a viable market. And I, so I think that's important. And I'm curious, like you talk about that, you know, okay, we think there might've been a thing that we can service. 
let's say you reached out to a hundred CISOs on LinkedIn, you gave that little pitch. What was the conversion rate to actually talk to them, roughly? I think it was pretty good. It was about 20% agreed to yeah. talk. Okay. But that's the, you and me talking like as salespeople, right? Like, you know, you get it like 20% is huge for a cold outreach, but I, I want everybody to know that if you aren't familiar with, that means you got eight people that ignored you or told you to have a nice life. And so that's huge because that took a lot of time too. What's the ramp there? Like that research time to do that outreach campaign and assimilate all that feedback into something that was actually useful. How much calendar time are we talking about for you and your partner? I think it was about two months off, but very intensive. Like we, yeah, that's very intensive. Yeah. We decided then immediately when we started, and I think that's maybe another tip or opinion is that we, we quit our jobs, right? So I know some people say, yeah, I'm going to keep my day job and maybe on the side, I'm going to do some discovery and understanding. And if I see that it's real, but I think that's not a good approach because you want to be all in. That's You want to come wake up in the morning with your company in mind and go to bed with that in mind, especially as a first timer when you don't have all the experience and all that. And then you just do it very intensively, you get quicker results. And we also, you know, Daniel, my co-founder, the technical, the CTO, he was working on the demo and making sure we have something to show to the investors also. And we just said, hey, like we, we got a validation. Looks like it's a problem. Is it number one on the list? No. If it was number one, we're probably late. It's got like number four or five. But we believe it's, the problem will get bigger because devices are getting more and more connected and attacks are getting more sophisticated. So eventually they're going to have to do something. We got this validation. So we said, okay, let's build a deck that will include, hey, why us as the team? You know, our cyber expertise, our ability to build the team relatively quickly because of the military connections and experience in Israel, you know, the complementary of the skill sets. And we said, we have the what, we have the why, we have the team. Let's go at it. Let's try and get those intros to the investors that are getting feedback. And we said, hey, we're going to try it for eight months. And if we're not able to raise money in eight months, then that's it. We were going to be out of money. And we have to get back to day jobs because we have families and we need to feed people. And if we are able, then let's get started. That's to your point. I think you asked, like, how do you know? So we just had a deadline. If we are not able to raise money by this date, we're closing the kick, right? And I believe that discipline is so important. I mean, that's what's missing a lot. I don't know if it's the like cultural or just, you know, military discipline or whatever it is in your background there. But when you went to battle with this thing and you just said, like, I talk to people that take a year or two years of doing their customer discovery on the side or whatever. And I think that level of discipline and attack mode is important and it gets missed and it often gets mislabeled as this sort of hustle culture. That was just like straight up work. <laughs> and I think that's different, like deliberate strategic attack plan with a clear endpoint in mind, like we either will or will not hit the objective. And if not, we're not going to get emotional about it. And I think that's just huge. And I don't think that happens very much. So I hope everybody's paying attention to that. And, and I think a big part of it is the quitting the day job, because I, I wish I could say, hey, I'm so disciplined. And from it's no, it's just if once you quit your job and you have expenses, then you're burning money. And you know that you have to work quickly because you're not getting a salary until you're getting funding from investors. So that, the thing, that's the big advantage of quitting the job, because if you don't, 
then you're comfortable, you're investing less hours, and it really becomes more of a hobby than a business. Oh, yeah, that forcing function is huge. You set up the dominoes and you're going to do it or not. And I think most major, what is it, necessity is the mother of invention, right? <laughs> you just like, we don't have a choice. Like, we're going to do this or come hell or high water. And I, I, I like that. I think that you, you set it up the right way and burn the bridge, so to speak. So. And there's going to be no regrets, right? Even if you're not successful, at least you're not going to spend time telling your wife, hey, you know, I wish I did that. No, you actually did it. And if you're not successful, well, I tried. I'm proud of myself. I learned probably a lot of things. And maybe try again in the future or maybe not, but at least you've done it. So I think that congrats to you for having done that. I think that's a great roadmap. So I'm so glad to get that story. Before I let you go, I, I told you at the beginning, I like to get, you know, your, you are you, your unique perspectives from where you came from in your seat, looking at a unique vector of the industries, in your case, healthcare, cyber, whatever it is, but you're a B2B leader, just like everybody else on my show. And what I like to know is what's most important popping on your radar screen, which is different than everybody else's, that you think should be on theirs too. A unique perspective from where you're at. What must the other B2B leaders think about soon, you know, in the next two years? I don't know if, how much unique that is, but in my opinion, the Gen AI is just a huge thing. I know everybody talks about it, but of course it's not unique in that. But I think that a lot of people are, you know, right now just using that as a buzzword or if they go into a cocktail party, they need to say a couple of times chat GPT to sound knowledgeable. But in reality, it's a really big revolution of the business, right? There's a lot of capabilities. Like you, you can build a website within 20 seconds, stuff that took us like months to do. And I just think every leader needs to deeply understand how to implement ChatGPT either as a differentiator in their business or as an offering that they're offering to their customers. Because if, if they're not doing it, maybe be sure that the competition is doing it, again, either internally as an organization or externally as an offering. And if you're not thinking about it, then you're already behind. And in, I think in the near future, companies that will not make this adaptation will be left behind. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's come up a lot recently. And I think there's a difference between seismic shift and just hype cycle. Like a year and a half ago, everybody's talking about crypto and how Web3 is like, have you hear that at all now? That was hype cycle. It just collapsed. This is not going to collapse. Like there are real business case uses and anybody can dive into this thing and be 40% more productive like tomorrow. And I think that's the stuff that matter. And businesses that have the infrastructure to leverage this, you are absolutely doomed if you don't do this work. I, I can say that with certainty because I'm shocked every day of just playing with this stuff on doing my work better. And I'm not even integrating with anything. I don't have a massive data set. It's mind blowing. And I, and I think you're right. And I, I hope people are paying attention to that. Just for God's sake, get online and do a course or read everything you can. It's actually not even that hard, but just start because you're doomed if you don't do this. And, and it's, as you said, it's a capability. It's not a gimmick. It's not a field. It, it's, it's a capability across multiple disciplines that can be leveraged to make your business more efficient and better, 
Uh, and if you don't going to use it internally, I think in a few years, customers going to ask, we want to use ChatGPT in your GUI. Do you have it? Oh, you don't have it. I'm going to go with the competitor because I'm, I don't want to train my people to do complicated things. I want them to use an easy chat to be able to complete their tasks and then what you're going to say, right? If you haven't thought about that. So that's, and there's going to be probably 200 different niche point, I don't know, point solution databases of like the healthcare one, right? Like it'll be who has the most healthcare data, who has this, who has that. But every chat box may very well become like chat GPT might be the, I'm going to Google it, which of course terrifies Google, but you know, there's going to be like a million of these solutions. There's already open source bots and LLMs and it's just. The pace of change in the last six months has been absolutely unbelievable. And the stuff that, and it's like, it pushes to your phone, like right now, like I, I can do the thing that I need to do. And yeah, it's shocking. So I, I completely agree. And thank you for that insight. I hope everybody is paying attention. So before we run out of time, Leon, thank you for insights. Awesome conversation. Love your path. A little contrarian in there, a little bit different than what people usually tell me. So I dig that. I appreciate you sharing openly and congrats on your success. Look forward to hearing stories again in a couple of years to see where you took it. Obviously, if you're a healthcare CISO, you need to look up Scenario, but you probably know that already because I'm sure everybody knows about Scenario. But <laughs> Leon, where can people reach you and your company if they want to reach out, if they're resonating with parts of the conversation? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. We've gone to our website. It's www.scenario.com. You can email me. I'm leon at scenario.com. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thanks so much for coming out. Really loved it. Thank you. That was fun. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.